Hello and welcome to the Royal College Psychiatrist podcast with me, Ella Marchin. This month we have two very special Pridecasts to celebrate Pride Month. On our second Pridecast of the month, we will be talking to James and Mark about eating disorders, bullying, creative outlets and what kind of support the government can give the LGBTQ community. James is a mental health campaigner, an expert by experience in eating disorders and a yoga teacher. He's written extensively about his own experiences with the hope that those who read his work find comfort and hope. In this podcast, he discusses how assumptions about sexuality and gender persist as barriers to access an appropriate and effective mental health care. Mark is a champion of the patient and carers and holds a number of national and local roles in which he works with the NHS and social care. Mark has experienced severe depression and anxiety throughout his adult life, starting when he was in college. In this interview, he reflects on being brought up as a Catholic and discusses the bullying he experienced as a child, which led him to develop a personality disorder. This podcast contains topics that some listeners may find upsetting. James, could you tell me a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your mental health history as well? Hi Ella, it's lovely to be here and first of all I just want to say it's really important that we're talking about this subject and the experiences of LGBTQ plus people, especially in relation to mental health. Mental health and psychiatric services haven't always dealt with this issue very well, so I wanted to get that sort of right in there at the very beginning and just acknowledge how complicated it can be to talk about some of these things and how I definitely don't represent anyone more than myself, but maybe there are some things about my experience that other people can relate to. So my name's James. At the moment, I work in a mixture of things relating to mental health policy and research. So some things at the Royal College of Psychiatrists, some things with universities and the NHS. And I also teach yoga and dance, which has been a really important part of improving my mental health after a very long time of struggling. And I've had a number of different diagnoses over the years. And I think it's taken a very long time to get to an understanding that works for me, that actually represents the kind of experiences that I've been through since quite a young age. And I look back at when I developed a psychiatric or diagnosable mental health problem, and I was around 14. But the roots of that stretched well before that. And I think it's all too common that people don't get the help that they need, or it doesn't even get identified as a problem until you're sort of towards a really severe difficulty. And I ended up in child and adolescent services around 14 with severe OCD and depression. And my obsessions and compulsions related a lot to my body image. And there was an intersection, I suppose, with eating difficulties as well. And I think what really strikes me looking back is that the people who were treating me and the people around me, whether it was school or my family, they didn't really know what was going on for me or didn't look beyond the superficial symptoms and you know, neurotic conditions, neuroses, whether that manifests as a body dysmorphia or an eating disorder can be driven by other things. And for me, I really struggled with being able to go to school and sit in a classroom and pay attention and focus and regulate my energy and attention. And it sort of meant that I reached unhelpful ways of coping with that. And OCD was was one of them. And really now I understand that as struggling with attention regulation. And very recently I was diagnosed with ADHD. And I think that I presented a very long time ago with, with these symptoms, but because 
the superficial symptoms rather than the drivers of you know ADHD were so alarming, especially when I developed anorexia, people didn't really see beyond that. And it shouldn't be the case that people get diagnosed with ADHD in their 30s when they presented with problems that might not look like a stereotype in their teens, um, but then have to struggle and struggle for many, many years before they get the diagnosis and the help that they need. And I think my history tends to be dominated by the story of eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia. And that's certainly what people seem to see me as representing. And I often get asked to talk about those experiences, especially as a man having had eating disorders, and especially as a gay man having experienced eating disorders and all the associations with body image pressures that the gay community might have, etc. But actually, the underlying driver was this difficulty regulating attention and shutting down my body was one way of coping with it and shutting down this hyperactive sort of drive and and binge eating is a way of seeking stimulation so I suppose what really frustrated me looking back was that nobody saw beyond these symptoms to the underlying drivers and the emotional experience of what I was going through it was very much you're being badly behaved you need to fix this behavior, fix your faulty thoughts, and you'll be fine and off you go. And I think part of the reason it wasn't detected was that I still achieved really well. I wasn't the classic stereotype. I could achieve straight A stars without going to school. And that didn't mean that I could function in the rest of my life. And it caught up with me that I couldn't keep up with studies when I went to university, for example. So I ended up dropping out of lots of things, dropping out of medical school, not being able to go to university. And it's really unfortunate that most of my 20s and my teens were just really struggling and really, really struggling to get help and to get support. And I think that we need to get much better at offering people support rather than hoping that they can jump through the hoops that mean they can possibly get support if they're lucky. So a lot of my work is really around trying to improve that so that other people don't have to go through the kinds of things that I went through because I'm only just able to access the treatment that I need and it's not like I wasn't presenting to services again and again and again and people often ask for help very nicely the first few times but unfortunately it might become a cry for help because of the system that doesn't listen to the polite asks for help. So as you can probably tell I'm really passionate about the systems in which people can seek and receive help for their mental health. And I'm very passionate also about psychiatry and the role of psychiatry and being able to piece together all the parts of the picture that somebody might be going through, rather than just the thoughts or just the physical health symptoms or going from one place to another place to get the help that you might need when care is often siloed between physical health and mental health and even between mental health conditions. So. I'm very happy to be working with the college and to be using my voice really to ask for these changes and to articulate what better mental health care really looks like. Thank you so much for sharing that, James. And something that we've discussed on the podcast previously was the similarities between OCD and eating disorders, specifically a really heavy link between OCD and anorexia. And we had a psychiatrist on two months ago who was saying that she believes that OCD and anorexia are the same mental health need. Is that something that kind of resonates with you because of course anorexia also has a lot of intrusive thoughts and a lot of physical and mental compulsions 
I think I do relate to that. There is a huge overlap. And when I first had anorexia, I thought that, well, this is pretty similar to the OCD I was already experiencing, which was more around my image and body dysmorphic kind of symptoms. It just shifted specifically onto weight and shape and the behaviours then corresponded to that. But I would also say that it was perhaps unusual that I developed an eating disorder whilst I was in child and adolescent services. And it's something that I will often say that is perhaps a bit controversial, that there was an element of me seeing anorexia as an escalation of my behaviour because I'd gone to get help and was hoping that somebody would understand me and my experiences. And when they didn't, that was pretty frightening and quite devastating because all I felt they were seeing was, you know, fix the behaviour and off you go. And they didn't look beyond that, what was driving my distress and didn't see the emotional things. And I thought, well, what will make them notice then? And I thought, well, perhaps if I start to lose weight, they will take me more seriously. And I think that that isn't a simple, straightforward choice that I made. And I would never say that eating disorders are a choice. But I do think that perhaps I was pushed into finding more and more extreme behaviours to represent my distress when I wasn't actually being listened to in the first place or didn't have the tools to ask for help. So I personally think there was an element of that. And I was almost sort of coached into certain eating disorders behaviours because I knew that they would get attention and I knew that if I was at physical risk they would pay more attention and so I went further and further into these eating disorder behaviours that I didn't have when I went into services and I knew that they would get me one kind of attention but it still wasn't the kind of attention that I wanted. It was still just on the superficial symptoms, not looking at me as a person and looking beyond that and so I think this is a big risk that we run when we have services that are really inaccessible and also when we have care that doesn't comprehend somebody as a person and doesn't put together all the parts of the picture and actually at root I was struggling with with and at root I was struggling with ADHD and that wasn't spotted until much much later and perhaps if somebody could have seen beyond what was right on the surface as you'd hope specialists would be able to, then I wouldn't have escalated my behaviours so much into something that was so physically dangerous as well. So I think there's a huge overlap. I think that's correct. But I do think that we need to think about well, why in the first place. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for explaining that. It's, it's a lot more nuanced than we can explain in one sentence. Absolutely. And um, Mark, the same question to you. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself and your mental health history? So yeah, thank you for asking me to come along to talk about this really important subject. Um, so I'm Mark, I live in Leicestershire and I live there with my husband and we've been together now for about 23 uh, years and I've experienced mental health problems since I would say my 20s uh, when I went off to college and then university and when I was there I developed kind of really bad anxiety and depression and a lot of that when I look back is because of trauma that I went through uh, in my childhood. Uh, one of those things was being bullied because uh, I was gay and I used to go to a Catholic uh, secondary school and there was no conversation at all about being gay, lesbian, bisexual. It was all very much about relationships in heterosexual uh, settings all around about how it was a sin to be gay um, and those messages from my teachers, from the church but also through being bullied really affected me and caused me a lot of trauma. 
I think that's what then led me to developing personality disorder uh, problems. So I do have a range of different personality disorder traits and they've had a huge impact on my life in that one of the personality disorder traits that I have is being around, you know, relationships and always sort of questioning who I am, but then how other people view me and always saying to myself that I'm not good enough and that I might be upsetting somebody. So I must do better, you know, in their eyes. Within the last sort of 10 years or so, I've also developed arthritis and fibromyalgia. And again, that's added on to my depression and anxiety. So it's made me feel a bit bleak, you know, about my future. And it's had a big impact on my body uh, image. I think as somebody from the LGBTQ plus community, that what I've realized looking back is that body image has been a big thing. And if you look at LGBTQ plus media, things like magazines, uh, they portray a very young, a very, you've got to be fit, you've got to be muscular uh, image. And that's had a huge impact on the way that I think about my own body image. So having arthritis of the fibromyalgia has made it really difficult to lose weight, to exercise and all those sorts of things. So it's been a bit of a toxic combination that's all added up. So I do live with that severe anxiety and severe depression and personality disorder as best as I can. And I think to get me a bit more of a future like James, I've thrown into myself into a range of things. So I do do a bit of work for the Royal College of Psychiatrists on the Chief Executives Equality Task Force. And our role there is to promote equality within the college, but also in psychiatric and psychological services up and down the country. Um, and I really enjoy being part of that. So that, that's been fantastic trying to promote you know, LGBTQ plus equality in psychiatry through that role. I also sit on a number of NHS trust boards uh, where I lead on mental health in Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland. So I am getting a bit more of a strategic day-to-day say in the operation of those services. So I'm making sure that, you know, that perspective of being LGBTQ plus is represented uh, within that. Um, so... My way really of dealing with my anxiety and depression has also had a bit of a negative impact in that I've thrown myself into so many local and national roles that I'm almost doing too much as a way of switching off from the problems in my mental health. And it's really disappointing to have to say that things like personality disorder in particular, they take five or six years before you even get a proper diagnosis of it. And it takes even longer beyond that before you start doing treatment around personality uh, disorder issues. But it's also been the same for the treatment of my depression and anxiety. Again, you know, I've just had lots and lots of pills thrown at me. There's not been enough in terms of dealing with the trauma that I experienced. And the particular trauma that I experienced as being somebody with somebody who was treated as being different as a child by the peers around me and what that has meant for me throughout my life and not having that dealt with, it still plays on me now. But I'm feeling better than I have done for quite a long time. And that's been down to the thanks of medical treatment that started to work well for me.
Thank you for sharing that with us, Mark, and also thank you for being so open about your experiences when you were younger as well during school, because that must have been a really, really hard time. And I'm glad that you're feeling good now as well. And also congratulations on 23 years with your partner. When's your anniversary? It was a few months ago. So we got married actually on the date that we first met. And um, people can't believe that back then you would meet through people through the kind of back column of a newspaper where you put an ad in. Um, it seems quite archaic now to the kind of online platforms that people use. But that's how we met, actually, through the through a newspaper. That's so cool. That's really nice. Do you have the newspaper clipping? I, do you know what? I wish we did. And it'd be quite funny to reflect on what how we described ourselves. Uh, back then but I think what it reflects for me is that the community back in the 90s was starting to come out of this decades of it being very hidden away to when in the 90s through things like that but also what was going on within television and wider media we were becoming more and more visible but I actually found coming out in the 90s easier than coming out as having a mental health issue 10 years ago that was far more difficult than coming out as gay and that for me just shows how much how far we've gone with lgbtq plus a community uh, visibility and getting rid of stigma but the, the huge stigma that still sits around having a mental health diagnosis that leads us very nicely on to the next question how does being part of the lgbtq community influence the way you think about mental health I think in a number of ways. So I think, of course, you reflect on your own personal experiences. And like I mentioned earlier around how in the LGBTQ plus community, there's this very clear sort of you will be this way. You will be beautiful. You will be strong. You will be thin. Um, And then all the messages that even to this very day are still out there uh, in the community around that. So it just reminds me that when we think about mental health and the community, that there are a lot, there'll still be a lot of people out there that feel uh, that way. I would still say as well that there are young people that are still being heavily bullied at school. And thinking about how, again, when we think of mental health services, that we need to make sure that our services are really, really good and picking up people at school, at college, that might be experiencing that and that they may need a particular type of help to help them understand who they are, but then how to be confident in, you know, as that person. And I just, you know, thinking back as well about making sure that people feel accepted. And James, the same question to you. How does being part of the LGBTQ community influence the way you might think about mental health, if at all? I think this is a really interesting question and quite a difficult one because I don't know if I see myself as part of the LGBTQ plus community and some people sometimes talk about the eating disorders community or you know the mental health community and I'm like aren't we all part of a big community although there are sub communities within that I suppose and I don't know I, I haven't particularly struggled with feeling like there are lots of issues within the LGBTQ plus community for me personally and I was very very lucky that coming out wasn't very difficult. I come from a very accepting family and actually my sexual orientation has never perhaps been the problem that others have perceived it to be and I do think there are some issues that are only from my own personal experience. I think that my group of mostly sort of gay male friends 
do tend to objectify people freely, put people into different boxes based on their appearance without challenging that. And that's accepted as normal. And I try and call it out and people respond to me as being, oh, you know, don't don't be so prudish or, or that's not cool. And actually, I think we do need to be better at, at not evaluating people at all, whether it's on, on appearance or otherwise. And I think that that can be can be an issue. And that does relate perhaps to body image standards and some specific pressures that are around eating disorders, which is something I mentioned earlier. But I would say really that whilst there is research, let's go with eating disorders, saying that people from LGBTQ plus backgrounds are more likely to be at risk of developing eating disorders, less likely to be understood and less likely to get the support that they need. I think that most of those issues are not inherent in the LGBTQ plus community or individuals. And it's too easy sometimes to situate these problems within individuals as though that's your inherent problem because because you're gay or because of whatever. And actually, a lot of it, I think, and a lot of the research suggests that it is about the way in which society responds to those people who have different identities rather than the problems they themselves have. So, yes, perhaps there is something around perhaps not having, you know, having a discordance between your your gender identity and your sex that might be really difficult for people. But actually, it's just as or more difficult sometimes when the rest of society responds to you in a very discriminatory or non-understanding kind of way. And there's, you know, we don't need research that says people have better outcomes in their mental health treatment when they're treated using the pronouns that they prefer. That shouldn't be a research question or a research paper. That's very obvious. Um, and I think that there are some of these really systemic contextual issues that are at play here that for me in my own personal experience have been more important than my own inner conflict and we like this narrative of inner conflict and being torn apart over your sexuality and that's not true for everybody there is no one unified view of what it is to come out or to come to terms with your sexuality and you know maybe it's fluid over time anyway and I think that we have to be really careful about the assumptions that we make. And so that's been really the case to me in my treatment that I've felt people have made assumptions about my experience as a gay person that just weren't true. I had doctors tell me that I would grow out of anorexia when I came to terms with my sexuality, or it was always used as this sort of explanation to explain away why I had the problems that I did. Oh, it's inner conflict, but actually it wasn't. And there was something perhaps more subtle about me not being comfortable being in my body and being a sexual being, but that was never to do with my orientation. And so I think we have to be careful when we're thinking about raising awareness of these kind of issues, you know, raising awareness is not replacing one set of assumptions with another by listening to somebody and saying, yeah, that's the experience for all gay men. So I think it's, it's subtle. It's, broad. I think there are specific problems within certain communities that might affect people's mental health. But then what about the strengths? What about the strengths of being part of an empowered community that's really good at supporting each other? A lot of my friends are very literate about mental health and about emotions. And I think that's a great strength that's within my particular LGBTQ plus community and creativity and the whole sort of embracing of yourself and all your different 
facets. So I think that it is difficult to untangle what's specific to different identities, and perhaps it's more about not making assumptions at all. So a very different answer to Marx in the sense that, or you you haven't kind of had your identity as a gay man um, influence the way you think about mental health, but perhaps having mental health needs such as what you've mentioned, OCD, anorexia, bulimia, have influenced the way you look at mental health. Yes, I think so. I think that like many people, or like all people, I have many different identities and sometimes they're competing and conflicting, but working out which part is causing the difficulty. I don't know, I find that quite quite difficult to do. I have experienced a lot of bullying and some particularly unpleasant events and violence and things uh, because of my sexual orientation, but I don't see that as having had a massive impact on my mental health. And I've experienced trauma and was diagnosed with complex PTSD, but the trauma that I've experienced from mental health services and not being heard by professionals in situations where I've really asked for help and not, not been listened to, that's been far more damaging and far more consequential for my mental health. And part of that perhaps was being ignored because of having a different sexual orientation. And I think that that is more of a key issue that needs to be talked about for me. Thank you so much. And that does really nicely lead us on to the next question, which is to do with psychiatry and mental health services. So psychiatry and mental health services have a very difficult past with the LGBTQ community. Obviously, just to name a few, of course, gay conversion therapy and as you're saying, James, just in generally not being listened to. Mark, we'll go with you for this one. How do you think mental health professionals can seek to repair this difficult relationship that they have? I think they've already started the process of trying to repair uh, that relationship. So we go back to the, back to sort of around 2009, when the Royal College of Psychiatrists spoke about how gay conversion therapy should not be, you know, allowable. Um, and that, you know, and it's really often described as psychoscience by many people, because that's what it is. There's no scientific evidence for its basis. So I think that process uh, has begun. I still think that there are attitudes within psychiatry that are, you know, outdated. Um, when I talk to people, you know, they talk about how they, uh, their psychiatrists assume that because they were LGBTQ+, that they were promiscuous or, or, or an alcoholic and then were asked loads and loads of questions about things that were just not relevant to their mental health issue. So I think there's something around retraining people, keeping people's training, you know, uh, up to date. Uh, I don't think enough of that happens within psychiatry. I also think it's thinking through about how we individualised care and James really made that point about how, you know, we're all individuals. Um, and I, I'd just like to say again that one way in which they could repair it is to stop seeing people that as being blocks that sit neat, neat, neatly into, you know, pegs, not just on the physical side of things, but more so on the mental high side of things needs to be personalised uh, to meet that person's need. And then I think one final thing for me would be that, you know, I think what used to go in the past around mental health, the mental health professionals in our community, 
was beyond scandalous and the things that they did uh, to almost stop people having urges as they used to call them you know are absolutely disgusting and I think therefore the community of mental health professionals should provide a collective apology uh, to LGBTQ plus people and then work with us more closely to think about what our experiences are um, and what can be made better in the future. Like I say, I think the Royal College of Psychiatrists is playing a huge role in making that happen. I think we've just got to make that permeate down to the local level. And that comes from training and it comes from investment. So the investment that the government is now putting into mental health services being invested into personalised care more. So that, yeah, that's it. And James, same question to you. There's a really difficult past between psychiatry, mental health services and the LGBTQ community. How do you think mental health professionals can seek to repair this? I would argue that there is a difficult past, but I wouldn't say that it's in the past. I think there's still problematic things that persist today. And if we look at society broadly, understandings about sexuality and gender, there are problems. So of course that's going to reflect within our institutions and within professions. So I think it would be overlooking a problem to say that it's all in the past. But then again, you look at the history of psychiatry and psychiatrists and psychologists have always been very interested in sex and survival. And that was really explicit and was really at the forefront. And then I look at my experiences of seeking help and I've hardly ever been able to talk about sex or relationships in a clinical setting. And I think it's something that perhaps professionals, at least the ones that I've spoken to, haven't felt very well equipped to talk to me about or as though it's been something that's not been relevant. And an example of that is the last time I was referred to eating disorder services, I had to fill in a form of more than 200 questions and not one of them was about sexual function or about sex drive, libido or relationships. And these things are impacted by eating difficulties, by mental health problems, by all kinds of things and that it is relevant and actually it was something that I wanted to talk about because the way in which I view my body is also conditioned by being a sexual object or being viewed sexually by other, other people, it is relevant to my issues and I think that my experience of treatment has been that there's a very narrow number of things that can be on the table in eating disorders it's thoughts about food thoughts about weight and when I've tried to talk about things like oh you know I'm using grinder a lot and it makes me really self-conscious about my abdominal fat people have just been like what what are you talking about I don't I don't understand or I even had one professional laugh when I talked about that and I thought well actually it's not funny because these are things that I'm saying are relevant to my mental health and relevant to my condition. And just because it's not reflected in the research, which is very, very limited in the field of eating disorders and mental health in general, doesn't mean that it's not relevant in my life. So I think that what professionals can really do is think about equipping themselves to respond to what people bring. Part of that is allowing everything to be on the table, not just this narrow range of things and not you know, never consider considering sex and the way in which libido might be affecting somebody or affected by medication, for example. And then also to just really listen to people's experiences, because however limited the evidence base is or however wonderful the evidence base is and, and the manual for therapy or whatever it is people might be referring to in treatment, 
actually the person in front of you is the source of evidence, the primary source of evidence. And if they are saying that this is relevant in their life, then it should be listened to and it should be responded to. It should be incorporated as part of that individualized treatment. And there's a stage before that in making an environment in which people feel they can say these things in the first place. So it's not just hoping that it might come up if it's relevant. It's actually setting a tone or even actively asking about these things in case they are relevant in a way that's sensitive, of course. But I think that people often will uphold their silence about a whole range of things, not exclusive to sexual orientation or gender or anything. And we're perhaps really needing environments in which we can open up and talk and know that that's going to be safe and know that that's going to be responded to in a holding, compassionate kind of way. And if we think something is relevant for us, for it to be incorporated in the understanding of our condition and the way in which it's treated. So that takes it really back to basic principles around listening and around patient-centered care, but it has to be through openness, I think, and remembering that we don't know everything about mental health at the moment. There's a lot more that we can know and actually that psychiatry and mental health owes something to people from different backgrounds because they haven't necessarily been treated very well. They haven't been listened to in the past. So there's something about making amends for that too by providing these spaces. Just quickly add, add on to that around just language really. And I do still feel discriminated by some mental health professionals because they will assume that I've got, when I talk about being married, they'll assume that it's to a woman or they'll say, something else that reinforces that oh you must be heterosexual and for me you know language is ever evolving and i think what mental health professionals needs to do to improve its relationship with the lgbtq community is do that training keep thinking about how language you know is ever evolving it, and it evolves really quickly but you've therefore got to make sure that you're talking to LGBTQ communities, no matter where you are, a health, uh, mental health professional, about what is the right and wrong language to use, because language is such a powerful thing. It can reinforce stereotypes, or it can be used in a way in which helps celebrate who people are. So that's just one extra thought on um, what they can do to help improve their relationship with our community. Is that because you're married, not civil, it's not a civil partnership and they expect you to say civil partnership? Yeah, it is. It is, absolutely. Okay. So they would use, that. they'll say, oh, how is she doing? Or how is your wife? And I just get to the point where I was getting bored of telling people and correcting them. But I do now tell them off because I just think in 2021, people's language should be more considered and it should be further evolved than what it is still even now still even now yeah it doesn't take much effort to say how is your partner moving on to the next question gay conversion therapy is still legal in the uk the process of passing the law to ban conversion therapy actually started in 2018 and it's been incredibly slow as we're now in 2021 uh, james why do you think this is this is a tough question. I don't think I know all the answers. It's unfathomable that we have 
conversion therapy is still legal in this country. And I think perhaps there is an over pandering towards certain minority groups compared to others. And the, there's something sort of conservative about, with a small c, about keeping tradition and respect for certain religious groups, perhaps. But to me, I just really don't understand why we can't get on with this, because we're thinking about this principle of do no harm, and people are actively harmed by conversion therapy, and it often takes place in a sort of pseudo-clinical kind of setting. Why does the Hippocratic Oath not apply? And I'm thinking that we have to move faster on this, because there's a risk that people will be damaged and traumatized by their experiences. And what century are we in? You know, we want to see a situation where difference for whatever reason isn't problematized or medicalized or pathologized. And conversion therapy does all of those things and will leave people with further psychiatric mental health problems. And that in itself will need care and, and treatment. So I think that we have to be really serious about this. You have to think about the harms that are caused and we have a moral obligation to prevent that harm. Mark, the same question to you. Why do you think that this process has been so slow in eradicating gay conversion therapy in the UK? I just think it's not a priority for this current uh, government. Clearly it is not. I know that there's still talk about bringing it back along, but it just doesn't seem to be happening. And as uh, James was saying, it's not a recognised form of uh, therapy. Uh, no, there is no professional body in this UK that, that approves it for use. There's not a single one. And um, even according to the own government's data, I just had a quick look at some of the research uh, around this. And there was this was back in 2018, so a few years ago. But they found that seven percent of all UK LGBTQ plus people had been subjected to some form of gay conversion therapy. And that actually went up to 13% of all people that identified uh, as transsexual or transgender. So um, that is just a really worrying statistic. Obviously, some of this is all wrapped up in religion, of course, having uh, gone through being a Catholic for many years uh, as a young person. The mental health professional side, side of things, th this doesn't exist officially uh, approved in the UK. But when it comes to religion, they use religious counselling, and I put that in verbal, inverted commas, the word counselling. That still is going on uh, in the UK. So there's that indoctrination of that religious view that if you pray, if you self-reflect, then you'll stop being gay. That religious voice is still there and it's very strong. I think it's important to remember as well that these very conservative Christian views uh, are not representative of broader mainstream Christian views and they're quite niche in themselves. And I think that one thing that I encountered in, in my treatment was people making assumptions about my sexuality and my struggles with that that didn't really exist because my mum is a priest and she's an Anglican priest and she's very, very liberal, very affirming of LGBTQ plus people and would like to do more for them. And I think that we have to remember that even within the conservative Christian ideologies that, that exist, those are not mainstream and 
they don't represent most people of religious institutions. And there are many very affirming places of worship and communities that represent a very different kind of theology. But I did find it really difficult thinking the I did sorry, but I did find it really difficult when people assumed that because my mum was a priest, she would be anti-gay. And I thought, well, for a start, she's a female priest, so it suggests she's quite liberal, the liberal end of things. But there is also a rich tradition of religious counselling in certain parts of, uh, let me say that again, there is also a rich tradition of psychotherapies in, in Christianity, and these things perhaps shouldn't be diluted, but I think that it should be the case that people are prevented from harm. Thank you for answering such a complex question. Mark, with what you were saying earlier today about the language of um, marriage and um, civil partnership, we have a language issue with gay conversion therapy because we actually keep calling it gay conversion therapy when it's not therapy, it's abuse. It absolutely is a form of abuse, isn't it? Because, you know, ultimately it leads to people becoming more mentally unwell in the vast majority of cases. And James makes a really important point there about different religions view this in so many different ways. And it, it really was heartwarming to see that the Church of England, back in about 2017, called for gay conversion therapy to be banned. Um, so that, 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 you know, the main church in this country saying that it, it's a really big thing. So what active steps do you think the government could take to support the LGBT community? James, can we hear from you? I suppose the government really needs to remember that people are not in homogenous groups and people have different needs. And when providing services, there's always this tension, isn't there, between needing to have a structure around services and then needing to accommodate lots of different kinds of people. And we see that at a policy level and things that I've done with the college or with the NHS, where you have to design services along a certain criteria, but how can those criteria be flexible enough to accommodate people of all different kinds of backgrounds? So I think it needs to just be a thread that's woven through all our decision making, all of our service design and public services, and whether that's health or education, that it should be the case that people are not excluded or not harmed, we've been talking about harms of things like conversion therapy, by being in systems that they need to or should be in. So again, that comes through in education, it comes through in, in health. And I think at the moment, we do still have systems which exclude people for a variety of reasons. People might find it more difficult to talk about their experiences if they're from an LGBTQ plus background, like I said about my experiences. But then again, it's not always about that one particular identity. And I found it really harmful to be in treatment that's not suitable for my needs for completely different reasons, like treatment for eating disorders that doesn't respect the kind of experiences that I'm going through as an individual, but just imposes a kind of generic formula. So yes, we do need some kind of parameters and some kind of guidelines about what services and treatment looks like, but we also have to be honest that we don't have the research that reflects everybody's individual needs. You know, point me to some papers about male experiences of muscle dysmorphia in relation to disordered eating. We just don't have that research to a large extent. So I think that that almost gives us a license to be more flexible and gives clinicians a license to be more flexible because 
the source of reference is the patient in front of them because the literature doesn't exist. But if we are just tied to our manual of therapy or tied to the existing literature, then we're going to perpetuate and perpetuate these same understandings that exclude people and that exclude the diversity of experiences, exclude different identities. And actually, we need to do more to broaden out those understandings. So we need more research into diverse groups of people to really understand, well, what is the specific bit about this that is to do with being LGBTQ plus? Because we can't really say that at the moment. And I often get asked, you know, what is it like to be a gay man with an eating disorder? I'm like, well, I can talk about my own experience, but actually the literature is limited when you compare it to other conditions of a comparable prevalence, especially in physical health. So there's loads of things that need to be done, aren't there? There's this thing about making systems flexible enough to accommodate individuals, to acknowledge that the evidence base isn't what we want it to be, to do the research, to go out and find out what people like me and different groups of people actually want and need. And a big part of that is listening to people. But the more we can build that evidence base, then the more we'll actually reflect the needs of people. But when it comes to that face-to-face clinical interaction, always remembering that that individual, their experience can't be found in a in a book or in a research paper. It's going to be found in really assessing what they're coming forwards with themselves, facilitating them to open up and really listening and responding to that. And when we're talking about psychiatry, you know, I think that is where psychiatry is at its absolute best is when it can really think about the individual and how all the different component parts of their health might play out. And part of that will be psychosocial and to do with identity and to do with the ways in which people navigate oppressed identities and sexual orientation and gender identities and things like that. And how that relates to their physiological health, how that relates to their neurological health, you know, and I think that psychiatry is really well placed to make a big difference in this area, but we have to do so much across all these different different sort of facets of our understanding. Mark, what active steps do you believe the government could take to support the LGBTQ community? Well, I think there's a number of things. I think the government needs to begin by looking at itself and the language that they use to talk about things. There's a very recent example of uh, somebody at a very high level within government using really homophobic uh, language. And those sorts of things don't send positive messages to the community. So they need to think about the language that they use, but also what their core beliefs are. We need to hear more about what they feel that they need to do for our community. It needs to be more visible. So as we come out of the pandemic, refocusing a bit of attention. Um, I completely agree with James around research. Let's do more of it. Again, you know, now that we've got a bit more capacity coming into the system, let's uh, refocus on it. Uh, I'll boringly go on about kind of personalised care. So, of course, there's a huge national agenda around personalisation of care, particularly for those people with long term and complex physical or mental health needs. It's talking about, say, only a few hundred thousand people having personalised care, and it needs to extend that to tens of millions of people so that if you're having a treatment that there's a clear plan in place for your mental health that could be used across all services, that's based on your own self-identified needs, and then with a professional working with you to make that happen, So I think in terms of leadership, they need to be pushing really hard 
on the personalization of care to meet an individual's needs. I then also think that there's something around making sure that as a government, the way in which they take the NHS and professionals that work within it, that they've got to say to them that you need to have more regular training on things like language, uh, on things like, uh, you know, oppression uh, in practice and how you become anti-oppressive uh, in everything that you do. And I think they also need to promote LGBTQ plus role models. Um, you know, we've got to have more visible leaders at all levels of government, but also within mental health services that are flying the flag for our community. Um, you know, James and I are quite lucky in that we have national roles in which we can fly the flag for our community. Uh, but I, what I would say is, is that I would like to see that more within the, you know, professional side of things. So, you know, sort of famous psychiatrists, it could be that are LGBTQ plus. They are out there, but there's not an awful lot of them. And that makes me wonder what barriers will remain in place for that. And therefore, I think tackling those sorts of barriers would be a great thing. And then I think one final thing for me would be going back to the Single Equalities Act of 2010 because that obviously was supposed to be the big thing that brought together all equality and diversity, inclusion and genders together in one place. I think that bit of law is quite weak, actually. Um, I think that needs to be have more teeth about it so that if there is discrimination taking place, that bit of law can be used to do something about it. And I also think the language again in that should be modernised because it's very much dated of its time. And I'm particularly thinking of, you know, gender within that. Um, there's still too much of male and female within it. I see that played out even to this very day in surveys where you still only have two options. Are you male or female? So that's proving to me that the language of the 2010 Equalities Act really needs to be brought up to date and then given teeth. Could you tell me about someone who inspires you in your community, in the LGBTQ community, or perhaps in the community of people with mental health needs? Uh, someone that inspires you. This could be a close friend or someone you've never met. Yes, I don't have one person in particular, but I would just say that I absolutely love drag. And I think that there are many inspiring drag artists who really speak to people like me for their creativity, for their wholehearted embrace of their identities and who they are. And sure, some of it might be a bit performative, but who doesn't like a performance every now and again? And I think that we can learn a lot from people who are creative. And that's one thing that I'm really passionate about in treatment and in recovery, because I often found clinical settings very constraining and having these narrow understandings imposed on me and my experiences was always limiting to me. And I kind of wanted to tear up the rule book and make my own understanding of what my health is all about and who I am as a person. And that wasn't really allowed in services because people didn't really know how to talk about a big part of my life, which is being a gay man. So I think that I'm really inspired personally by creative people in general, but by people who sort of have that, uh, without swearing, that like I don't care attitude about 
being themselves in public and I think we can learn something from that kind of attitude and not just going with convention all the time. And Mark, could you tell us about someone in the LGBTQ community that inspires you? Yeah, I'm always really inspired by the work of Russell T Davis, the writer and creator of a number of things. So obviously back in the 90s, he did a number of programmes, including Queer as Folk, which really raised the profile of our community and some of the kind of like positive elements of it and some of the not so positive things. Uh, that were happening with it uh, at the time but it really brought us into mainstream uh, television and I think a lot of the profile that we've had within media was really helped uh, by that. He also continues to inspire me because he also did the program called uh, It's a Sin which was watched by many millions of people and it really helped people to understand the history of our community and the devastating impact that AIDS uh, had at the time. So he really also not only just does those sorts of things, but he also weaves characters into programmes that he does that are not solely about our community as well. So I was thinking about Doctor Who and characters he created uh, within that. You know, even doing small things like that, it brings us into the mainstream. So when they see two men kiss together, when they see two lesbians uh, in a relationship, it really gets people thinking about how they view the world and how they need to look at things uh, in a different way. And that's been an absolute uh, inspiration to me over the years, his work has. I would totally agree with that. And I think that representation is just so important. And in one way, I feel indebted to people of generations before mine who've made it so easy for me to be the person that I am. Yes, I've experienced bullying and some misunderstandings and discrimination and things, but I really feel like I'm in a privileged position because of that work that people have done before. And having grown up seeing people like me in the mainstream media and really resonating and I also think that other people who inspire me include people who are not famous at all, like my friends who are trans and the difficulties they have to face just through existing day to day and still refusing to sort of give up. I think that they give me a lot of inspiration. I sometimes find it difficult to relate to their experiences, but I am in huge admiration for them. If you would like more information on the topics discussed today, please go to our website, which is www.rcpsych.ac.uk. Then select About the College, then select Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. A huge thank you to both James and Mark for lending their perspective to the podcast and helping us to celebrate Pride. Thank you for listening to the Royal College Psychiatrist podcast with me, Ella Marchant.